So we're continuing in the book of Philippians, obviously. And last week, what Austin dealt with, he, he kind of discussed legalism and what that was. And then there was some good discussion, at least in my small group, there was good discussion. I think Austin and them had some pretty good discussion, um, just discerning the different types of legalism and what we're more prone towards as legalists from time to time. And hopefully you've seen that everyone, everyone can be prone to legalism, you know, uh, no matter which form it is that you, that you most gravitate towards, we're all prone to wander in that direction. And it's not just legalism in what you do thinking it earns favor, but it's what you refrain from doing as well. You know, I mentioned to my group, you know, well, well, I'm, I'm not a drunk and I'm faithful to my wife, you know, and if I think that earns me favor with God, that's legalism. Right, so, and that's, that's what Paul is kind of starting chapter three off with when he references the dogs, not the Georgia Bulldogs, right? So he's not referencing them. Don't be aware of them. They don't post much of a threat. So, so you don't have to worry about that. <laughs> so, uh, and Evan, that's not, that, that was it. That was free. I do have some more, uh, some more good SEC stuff in the sermon today. So, um, so stay awake, right? So, um, so <laughs> I didn't know they lost. Uh, but that shows you how much I follow football. So anyway, so Paul references the dogs. He references those who mutilate the flesh. Why do you think they mutilated the flesh as a part of legalism? Let me, let me do these things to find acceptance, these rituals, whether they're dark or whatever. And so that's what Paul references. And then he moves on past that and he starts to kind of build on top of this argument that he started to make. And what he lists are all these Faulty grounds for boasting. You know, that's, that's what he starts out with, these faulty grounds for boasting. And it's pretty simple. You can read it just as well as I, and you can hear Austin say it. You know, Hebrew of Hebrews, it was the tribe of Benjamin circumcised the eighth day. And we realize that what he's doing is he's listing his credentials. He's saying, if someone has a reason to boast, it's me. And that's obvious from the text. But what I want to show you, just by way of well, not introduction, we're actually into the sermon. But at the beginning, I want to show you why those are boast-worthy things. Why would a first-century Jewish person like Paul, why would he put any kind of clout or any kind of hope or confidence in those type of things? Why would he do that? And so I want to walk you through just those, just kind of a bullet-pointed type of a thing as to why he's referencing these as, or we see them as faulty grounds for boasting, but why he even lists those as a part of his resume. So he begins by saying, I was circumcised the eighth day. It's a big thing to be circumcised on the eighth day. It's a big thing. It means that you're following what the law is. And all this is really pointing to the fact that Paul was a law keeper. He was a legalist of legalists. You know, in a, in a world of legalism, he was, the, he was the godfather. I mean, he was to a T. He says, no one can hold a candle to my law keeping. This is what he's going into. This is how he sets it up. He says, if you think that you've done well in keeping the law, just stop right there because you can't come close to me. This is how he's setting things up. And he says, I was circumcised the eighth day. To be circumcised on the eighth day was a big deal. This meant that you were a strict adherer or adherent to the law, if circumcision, if circumcision according to the law was somehow viewed as an advantage or was an advantage, then Paul would have been in the lead. He would have had the most advantage. 
There were others that were circumcised on the eighth day, but that's just one in a list of many that Paul mentions. He doesn't just say circumcise the eighth day. He says, I'm of the people of Israel. And this is why this is important, especially writing to a people that aren't Jewish. Okay, so especially writing to people, well, considering the Gentiles, those that would be grafted in, consider when he writes to these Gentiles, he says, I boasted in being an Israelite. He wasn't grafted in. He was a direct descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that held a lot of sway with people back then, especially if you're a Pharisee, especially if you are a keeper of the law and you're arguing for the impartation of grace and favor based on being a law keeper. He was a purebred Israelite. He was of noble blood in that sense. He wasn't grafted in. He wasn't a stepchild to being an Israelite. He was an Israelite. In the world of Harry Potter, he would have been a wizard instead of a muggle. Okay, you understand the reference there? Muggle is the half-breed. Okay, sorry, reading Harry Potter, whether you like that or not, that's what I'm doing. So that's what he would be. He was a direct descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He was not grafted into Israel as a Gentile convert. He was there. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He mentions that, which is the same thing. He's just further arguing for his being an Israelite. And the statement, a Hebrew of Hebrews, just stresses the purity of his lineage. It's just the purity of his lineage. He says, I'm circumcised the eighth day. I'm of the people of Israel. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin, which that wasn't just a, a, a light mention. It had weight behind it. So he's a Israelite, a Hebrew of Hebrews, from the tribe of Benjamin. The tribe of Benjamin was considered by scholars the elite class of the aristocracy. It was a big deal to be the tribe of Benjamin. Judges chapter 20, verse 16, talks about those from the tribe of Benjamin this way. It says, from them 700 were selected who could throw a stone with the left hand and split a hair. Basically, what's happening in the book of Judges is we know that left-handers are less common than right-handers, and it's always been that way. From the tribe of Benjamin, there are 700 left-handers that they could pull from that tribe, and they could throw with a slingshot or just with their hand, they could throw a stone and split a hair. And that's really just there to show you that these are the cream of the crop. The tribe of Benjamin was an elite class. This was not, you know, a bunch of schmucks. And Paul's saying, I'm from that tribe. Guess who else was from that tribe? King Saul. And there is an argument that maybe Paul, before he was Paul, was actually named after the king of Israel, Saul. He says he's, as to the law, he's a Pharisee. You say, what, is he, what does he mean by that exactly? I get the lineage thing. I get the purity of the lineage. I get the muggle versus wizard reference. I understand all that. But what, what does it mean as to the law of Pharisee? Well, Galatians 1.14, listen to this. This will help. Paul says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. The traditions of my fathers were the full body of Jewish, uh, Jewish both oral and written law. Anything and everything that had been passed down, Paul was a, a subscriber to it all. It wasn't just the written law. It wasn't just the law of Moses. It wasn't just that that he knew so well. By the way, if you were a Pharisee, you had to have memorized the entire uh, the entire Pentateuch, the entire first five books of 
of, of the Old Testament. And that was just one of the prerequisites to being a Pharisee. So not only did he have that down, but didn't get it at the time, but he also subscribed to everything, both written and orally passed down from his fathers, the traditions of fathers. You may have heard Jesus speaking to the Pharisees regarding worship. In the gospels, he says, so you cling so tightly you know, he says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. He says, what you do is, is you cling to the traditions of men. And this is what he's talking about. All these things that mean nothing without a heart behind it, without an intentionality to honor and exalt Jesus Christ behind these things, it means nothing. And that's what he said I was good at. He said, I was advancing. I was far beyond any of my contemporaries, any of my own age type folks going through the same kind of rigors that he was as far as becoming a Pharisee or being a Pharisee. He said, I surpassed them all. So if anyone has a reason to boast, he said, it's me. He said, as to zeal, as to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. And I'm just going to assume that not everybody know this, but you do know that Paul killed Christians. Uh, I think it's the first martyr, well, it's not the first martyr, but, uh, but because Jesus would have been, but, uh, but Stephen was martyred, and Paul was the one that oversaw the stoning of Stephen, All right? So that was Paul, first Christian martyr, thank you. Yes, yeah, so, so Paul is the one that oversaw that, but that wasn't all that he was involved with. You know, it's the understanding that he was on his way, this, the, the road to Emmaus, the, the Damascus, all these things, when he was on his way, when he had his conversion experience, he's going to yet get permission, get whatever he needed to get signed to get to persecute more churches, and that was zeal, and he was heralded as a first among, among many because of his zeal. And he says, look, you can't hold a candle to, to my credentials. No one's as faithful as him. No one's a better law keeper than him. No one is of purer descent than him. And he just makes this argument saying, so if anybody has reason to boast, it's me. He says, as to righteousness, righteousness under the law, I'm blameless. I'm blameless. He kept the law. He kept the law. He if you recall, for those of you that are apart, he is guilty of the first type of legalism that you discussed in your small groups. He kept the law. So at the end, what is Paul saying? He's saying these things cannot afford him any rightness or relationship with Christ. And we know this, right? This is not lost on us when we read this text. It's pretty straightforward. He says, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And let me tell you why. And they would understand this. If you're first century, you're listening to this Jew say these things, you get it. We have to have it explained to us because we didn't live 2,000 years ago. We don't understand that context like they did, especially before we were taught through history. But they would look at this and say, whoa, this is a, this is a big deal. Paul's saying, none of that counts. None of that matters. You have to put yourself in those shoes and see this huge placing of items on a scale that's about to happen. Because he's stacking the scale right here and he's showing, listen, I have all the credentials you could want and I'm better and more faithful at all of these things than you could ever be. And then he says, and if it's not good enough for me, it won't be good enough for you. If my credentials are not good enough for me to have this relationship with the Lord, there's no way your credentials are gonna be, are gonna be good enough for you. Because Paul says no one can hold a candle to his list to his accomplishments. No accomplishment, no credential, no status, or anything apart from Jesus can bring us into right fellowship with God. 
And this is both scary, but both encouraging. For those that are putting confidence in the flesh, this should mortify you. It should scare you to death because your efforts will earn yourself separation from God. And that's all they will earn you. And they will be so good at what they've earned you that it will last for eternity. That's what you are, in fact, good at. That's what you are, in fact, able to earn for yourself, separation forever because it's not the standard. So no accomplishment or credential. Theology teaches us that God's affections are not based on your accomplishments. This is why theology matters so much. And this is basic, easy. You'd learn this in middle school type stuff. You learn this in elementary school as far as going to church. You learn these things and teachers are telling you, listen, it's by grace that you're saved through faith. Let me just give you these basics. Here it is. It's not what you can do, but somehow we still fall into the same trap. Both sides of salvation. We do the same thing. We still have these legalistic tendencies, missing the fact that what Jesus actually did covered everything and brought us into a relationship that cannot be fuller. Can we know Christ better? Yes. But can we be received anymore? No. And just a little theology teaches that. The relationship in the beginning of Genesis, the relationship was broken supernaturally. Therefore, it has to be mended supernaturally. In Genesis 3, we have the fall, the relationship between God and man, broken supernaturally. That's why this is such a big deal. It's not just in, in, in the human form. It's not just this purely secular, purely human brokenness that happened. There is a supernatural thing that comes into play. Sin and all of these things, because you are being oppressed by the enemy, and there's a sinful nature that we have, and there's all these things that take place. So there's a supernatural aspect to the breaking of our fellowship with God. So there has to be a supernatural mending so that we can have fellowship with God again. And you may think that this is beating a dead horse because who among you hasn't heard these things before? You've heard me say these things before. You've heard it since you were little. Whether it's made or different or not is not the point. The point is you've known it. We're all still trying to earn our way to God and find favor with Him through our credentials on both sides. For the non-Christians, I've heard it so many times, well, I need to clean myself up a little bit. Before I can commit to Jesus, I need to kind of have my ducks in a row as if, as if that's the standard for Him accepting us. And do you know that people buy into that? A lot of people. You may hear that and think, well, that's just absurd. That's clearly not what the Bible teaches. But people believe it. I have knocked on hundreds and hundreds of doors where people tell me that same thing every single time. I know that I need him, but I've got to do some other things. Like, well, you don't know. You don't know your need. You don't know how much you need him. You, you don't know the need is such that you have such a need, but you're missing why you have that need. You're missing the point that you are so broken and separated and so destitute that you can't clean yourself up. And so on one side of salvation, we try to work to clean ourselves up. And we try to use some secular or humanistic way to mend what has to be supernaturally mended because it was supernaturally broken. But for Christians, we do the same thing. Perhaps you've said to yourself, I'm in a good place with the Lord because I've been reading my Bible and I'm praying consistently, and I just want to give you 
I want to be, I want to caution you in using that kind of language. Do I agree? Yes. If it's defined as I think it would be right, is it good to be growing in the Lord and reading the scriptures and walking in him as it says in Galatians or Colossians? Is it, is it good? Absolutely it is. That's, that's what we want. And does reading the Bible and praying do those things for you? Absolutely. But let me help you understand this because it depends on what you mean. There's like a phrase that we like to turn a lot. It's a gospel issue. It's a gospel issue. Well, what do we mean by it's a gospel issue? So that argument is similar to the argument that I'm making now for someone that says, I'm in a good place with the Lord because I'm reading my Bible and I'm praying constantly. If what you mean is the Lord, the Lord is, is, is he, he loves me, he's showing favor to me. Oh, he's been so gracious to me, you know, because I'm, I'm finally on track you know, I'm finally growing, I'm finally doing these things, be very careful because what that does is it dismisses the fact that it was based on Jesus that you have been grafted in and brought into right fellowship with Jesus, brought into right fellowship with God. So God cannot love you more than he loves you. He he doesn't accept you more tomorrow because you read your Bible all day than he does today. He accepted you based on the ransom that was paid by Jesus. So we have hope. I don't read my Bible today. I don't pray today. I don't pray for a week. Am I missing out? Absolutely. Does God love me less? No. No. And the simplest example for those of you who had kids, I would say to you, if you operate that way, then I would say be consistent and stop loving your kid because they've disobeyed you. Stop loving your kid because your kid just can't seem to follow the rules. And you say, this is the best thing for you, but your kid just doesn't get it. So you're going to withdraw your love, withdraw your acceptance because your kid just can't get his head in the game. You see the consistency there? So be consistent if you're guilty of these things. So that's what the word of caution that I would give you is it's right to say, you know what? I'm learning so much about God. I'm, I'm experiencing him differently because I'm growing in my knowledge of the word, I'm applying his word in my heart, and all of these things, I say, I say praise the Lord to that. That's awesome, but I caution you against thinking that these things earn you favor, because that's legalism, because it's an addition to Christ's work to find favor with God, and that applies to everything. Look, your church attendance doesn't bring you more favor with God. Your faithfulness to anything related to the church doesn't bring you more favor with God. Now, I will say this, there is a line somewhere, I don't know where it is, but there's a line somewhere between someone that's in Christ and they're just struggling, and then there's someone that's struggling because they're not in Christ, because they're trying to get there by legalism. And if you're doing that, you won't be consistent and you will fail. The referencing of things that are counted loss. Well, let me, let, me, let me continue to read what he says. So he gets to the end of his list. He says he's a persecutor of the church as to righteousness under the law. He's blameless, but whatever gain I had, he says that I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. He says, indeed, I counted everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ as Lord so at the end of Paul's credentials, he moves to say, now let me, let me tell you what I've done with these things. I now devalue these things because I've come to know my Savior. And that's what happens when you come to know Christ is everything else just gets shadowed by the glory of Jesus. And this is how that works. This is what happens. And this is what Paul is saying 
He's saying all these things that were gained. And let me say this. Some of those things were gained. In your life, this does not mean, well, do I need to, you know, am I not supposed to think that it's good to get a promotion? Am I not supposed to think that it's good to, to memorize Scripture? You know, and some of these works-based things, are those not good things to do? Absolutely, they're good things to do. They're not the standard for acceptance with God, but they're good. They're good for you, your growth and development. They're good for you to know Jesus better so that you can make more of him. I can make much of my wife better in 2018 than I could in 2005. Why? Because I know my wife more. I know how she ticks. I know what she's into. And those things change. And I'm on this crazy ride with her, right? And I'm trying to respond to, to her and the things that she's into so I can make much of my wife. Why? Because I've journeyed with my wife. I'm not going to miss the mark too often. Why? Because I'm invested in that relationship. And so the same is true of all these things that we do. Once we're in Christ, we're walking in him, we're living a life in a manner worthy of the gospel, as Paul has already argued. And you grow in that respect, and that is, and that is good. But all these things that we've been given, families, jobs, fun hobbies, all these things that are good things. Because if someone's not careful, they can look at this and say, well, that's legalism, so here's the scale. Let's put sin on the scale, okay? It's not just sin that Paul is stacking on the scale. You understand this. It's good things. It's good to be zealous. If you're zealous for the Lord, that's fantastic. It's not just sins, but it's anything that you put on the scale, so the point is this, Christ is not first compared to sin. Christ is first, period, period. You put wife on a scale. You put husband on a scale next to Christ. Christ outweighs it. You put wife, husband, family, you know, everything that is dear to you and everything that is good and right, and Christ outweighs it. There's no comparison it tips the scale and tosses everything far off away from the scale all to begin with. So it's not just the bad things that we're putting on there, but everything, because Christ is not to be weighed against everything. He doesn't compare to anything. He's in a league all in of himself. And that's what Paul means when he says, I've counted all these things to be lost. I won't go into this too much, but the actual word is uh, refuse, feces, dung. That's the word he uses. It's used two times in the entire New Testament. And he uses it here to show that all these things, that's how much they compare to Jesus. That's how much they compare to Christ. So Christ is being valued here by Paul. Paul finds this deep wealth and value in Jesus. So I guess a question would be for us now is what, what, what do we value in our life? Because it's time to start putting things on a scale if you haven't already. The things that you value, let's put those on a scale and see how they compare to Jesus and be honest with yourself. If Jesus doesn't just load it down and toss everything out into the cosmos, then we've got a problem. We've got a problem with our idols and those idols can be good things. But as a pastor once said, good things can become God things which makes them bad things. So what are the things that you value because the value that you place on Christ is evidenced by the value you place on everything else. How do we express our value? We express our values in our actions, right? The things that we do, we express those in our actions. By the way, this is where an atheist's 
argument breaks down or just one level where the atheist's argument breaks down. Because an atheism, an atheist has to admit that really nothing has intrinsic worth or value because we are all just a cluster of cells fizzing with no, with no objective standard for morality and no meaning, no purpose. We just exist. And these are words that they readily admit to you. And then you say, well, if your kid was playing in the street and you saw a car coming, would you not rescue that child? Absolutely I would. Why? Because I value them. But your child has no value. You see, it falls apart right there because things do have value. We do assign and ascribe worth to things. People have value. And they're expressed in our actions. We stand against abortion, and we might stand at an abortion clinic or have a hard conversation with an abortion activist or some woman who is considering abortion. And we do those things despite the conflict, despite how uncomfortable it might be, because we value life. Americans spend billions of dollars a year on their favorite hobbies. I did some research last night just on the money that would be spent on college football this season. So let me just read you a few things. And I want to go ahead and say this for some of our people in here. I'm not going against college football at all. This is just to say, hey, this is obviously something that we value. Four to 4.5 to 6 million people tune into big games on TV across the, uh, across, uh, across the southeastern U.S. from Texas A&M to University, uh, Texas A&M University to University of South Carolina. 72% of college football fans would make sacrifices for tickets, tailgating, fanware, et cetera. 72% of, of these people who are football fans said, hey, yeah, we'd make sacrifices. What do you make sacrifices for? Things that you value. That's, that's, if there's a sacrifice, intrinsically connected to sacrifice is the value of something. On average, SEC college football fans drop anywhere from $1,212 to $4,232 to support their team during any season. And that's just if they're involved with the home games and they don't travel. This includes ticket prices, stadium concessions, parking merchandise, tailgating, etc. That's a research done by SunTrust Bank. Clemson fans. Season tickets are upwards of $1,200 unless you're an IPTE. Am I saying that right? IPTE? Unless you're an IPTE member. An IPTE membership will vary in cost depending on which level you join. It starts at purple around... $160 to $400 for an orange level, or you could be like Joey with a Riggs level and pay $25,000 um, for that membership. And that's a part of the fact that you value something, right? Joey's an IPTE member. I don't know if he's purple or Riggs, right? Have a conversation about finances, right? Tables will turn. But he, whether it's $160 or whether it's $25,000, Joey is, he values Clemson. For whatever reason, he values Clemson football and the university itself because he got a degree from there. A season parking spot is around 800 bucks. Other parkers pay somewhere between 50 and $200 uh, for weekly home game parking, and that's over the season. An average, the tailgater spends $150 to $200 on food and drinks for the game. On average, fans spend $40 to $200 on concessions for the season home games. Not to mention gas, food, lodging expenses if they travel for those who go to away games, which lands between $650 and $800 just on those concessions. In summary, fans will spend between $1,500 and $8,400 during a single season cheering on the Clemson Tigers. Why? Because we're willing 
to go the distance for things that we value, right? Now, I'm not questioning whether or not why Joey values the Clemson Tigers or why he likes the Gators or he likes Georgia. I'm not, I'm not questioning that. It's just the fact of the matter is that these are things that we value, things that we treasure. And they're not necessarily the bad things. They can become bad things. If we put Clemson or Georgia or, or Gators on the scale and somehow they start to tip the scale and outweigh Christ, then we have a problem. And even if they're kind of teetering in between, we have a problem. And there's tons of actions to show whether or not Christ has preeminence and he has ultimate value versus whatever your interests are or whatever it is that you value. We're willing to go the distance for these things. We show our value for things in our actions. We show it in our time. I value teaching the word of God correctly. I strive to to learn these things, to present them correctly to you. So I try and spend considerable time in preparation. Time is evidence of value that I place in teaching and getting the Word of God correctly and correctly distributing that information. So ask yourself how much time is given to any particular, any, any particular thing, and that may be where your values lie. And then you have to determine if that is of greater value than Christ. Our values are weighed in our finances. This is not a tithing sermon, but consider how much money you spend on things like sports paraphernalia, on gadgets like me, on toys, whether it's an iWatch or Apple Watch or an iPhone or an iPad. Think about where your money goes, and that's an indication of where your values are. Again, those aren't intrinsically wrong, but we have to put them on the scale. We have to consider where Christ is when both are on the scale together. So what does it look like to value Christ? I, just, I want to read to you this text that just kind of wrecked me a bit this morning because I think it, it zeroes in on how and why we can get to a place where we value Christ in the way that Paul is valuing Christ because that's the question I'm asking myself as I'm preparing. I'm like, you can't manufacture this I can't just say to you, hey, go value Jesus, and somehow you feel it in your bones. Oh, I feel differently about Jesus today. You know, I want, I want to go die for the sake of Christ now. It doesn't just happen like that. I can't just tell you to do that. There has to be, there has to be something going on in you that gets you there. And I think this is a, I don't think there's a better place to start other than salvation. But, but listen to this. This is a very, very familiar passage So this is in the Gospels, the Gospel of Luke chapter 7, and it begins by saying, one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house, and Jesus reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, a whore, a prostitute. She was a sinner, and when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of of, of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair and her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, is this, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who or what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she's a sinner. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. 
a certain moneylender who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt for both. Now, which of, the, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. And you did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And here's the point of all that. Our treasuring Christ is the natural response to forgiveness. The way we treasure Christ is the byproduct of having been forgiven. If you don't treasure Christ, if I don't treasure Christ, some way or somehow, we don't get forgiveness. We don't understand it fully. Not that we can fully. I'm not saying that this woman with the alabaster ointment understood it fully, but the way that I'm understanding this, the way that I've researched and, and heard this to be explained or read this to be explained is her washing of Christ's feet, her weeping and her act of love towards Jesus was a response to having been forgiven. And what Jesus is saying is you see what she's doing is because she's been forgiven. He didn't say she's been forgiven because she washed me. He's saying that love is a byproduct of being forgiven. Because Jesus says later, it's your faith that has brought you forgiveness. It is the faith that has made you okay. So if your love for Christ is little, then you have a little understanding of forgiveness. If you think little of forgiveness, then you think little of your sin. And this is where I think it starts for us. After salvation, it's understanding from what we've been forgiven. It's understanding the need of forgiveness. If that is not where a lot of your time goes, and I would say to you and I would say of myself, then we're going to struggle to properly love Jesus. If you want to have your affection stirred for Christ, think about what you've been forgiven. Think about how you were separated and how God gave Christ and how Christ absorbed the wrath of God and an eternity's worth of wrath poured out on Jesus so that you might be justified, so that you could be forgiven. And the beauty of forgiveness is that you've forgiven all your sins. It's not that our, our, our response of love is the byproduct of, oh, well, I did this one thing that's really a skeleton in my closet that I really have never told anybody because I've got those and I'm sure you've got those and I don't want anybody to know that because I'm so ashamed. It's not just taking that, but it's taking every single sin and Jesus atoned for those and God's wrath was poured out infinitely for every single one on the person of Jesus Christ because that was the only hope that you and I had in order to have a relationship with God. 
That's what you've been forgiven. Not just what you've done then, not just what you do today, but what you'll do tomorrow. That's what you're forgiven. That's where it starts because that's what's happening in this text. Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Those who were eating at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So for this woman, when it came to the scale, that alabaster vial of perfume that took her a year's wages to purchase, according to historians, it mattered nothing to her. It paled in comparison to anointing the feet of Christ. And there's a lot of foreshadowing that goes on in that text as well, but that's not for today. So in closing, this is kind of where I want to go. Gaining Christ is not marginal for the believer. It's not marginal. It's central for the believer. It's chief. It's predominant. It's crucial, critical. It's everything for the believer. May we not become cavalier with salvation. May we never view Christ as an accessory rather than a necessity, but may we view him as a necessity. Jesus is not simply an addition to our life. Our life has been flipped upside down. We've been given new life. There's been a substitution that has taken place. Jesus is not the first in a list of many, but he's the only one. We have gained Christ. And let me just read to you the rest of this text that Paul says. He says, whatever gain, whatever gain I had, I counted all as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord. For the sake, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. He's saying, I have a new righteousness. Once I thought it was in my credentials, it was in the things that I did that made me right. He says, no, now what has happened is Jesus has given his righteousness to me. This is imputation. This is adding something. Amputation is taking away. Imputation is adding to. Christ has added righteousness to our empty, morally bankrupt account in terms of righteousness. And he says, boom, I'm giving you righteousness. Well, what did I do to deserve that? Absolutely nothing. This is grace. Here you go. Now you're justified. Be right with God. So Paul's boasting in that. He says, I put that on the scale and these other things can't stay. Christ weighs it down. He outweighs them all. He says, I'll be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. He says that I may know him in the power of his resurrection. And you might not understand what that means, but let me just help you by coaching you through this for about 30 seconds. And it's this, his resurrection meant that God approved of the ransom payment that was made by Christ. That's, that's Hendrickson commentary, New Testament commentary. His resurrection meant that God approved of the ransom paid by Christ. It was acceptable. We understand how a ransom works. In real world, we hope that whatever is asked for ransom, that they do receive it, especially if something someone has taken and they ask for ransom. You're hoping that it's approved. You're hoping that it's taken. Jesus, God received the ransom that was paid by Christ. Therefore, the freedom, and here it is, here's the application of the power of the resurrection for you. The freedom you live in spiritually and the hope and joy that you have every day is the byproduct of Christ's resurrection. 
that power is applied to your life because consider the fact, if there was no resurrection, there would be no hope. If there was no resurrection, there would be no joy. There would be no gospel. And then we'd all be in a big, hot mess. So that's how the power of the resurrection is applied. And that's what Paul means as he lives in a freedom. He lives with a hope. He can face suffering, suffering unto death and find joy in that because of the power of the resurrection and how that applies to him and to you and to me. He says that I might know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in death. Let me just make this side note. I'm glossing over this for the sake of time, and I would have done this if this was a 15-minute sermon. I'm glossing over this for the sake of time, but it is a weighty portion of the text. Entire sermons are built on this small text about suffering. So there's so much here. Don't think that I'm glossing over it because there's nothing to unpack. There's so much about suffering and suffering well in just that one particular verse in, uh, in, in verse 10. But Paul is saying that anything, anything that would make him like Jesus, anything that, would, that, would, that he could copy, that he could imitate, even suffering is of immense value because that's how precious Jesus, Jesus is. He's saying, if I can die for Christ, that's the epitome of all things that are good because I identify with Christ in his life and in his death. And then it finally says that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So how does all this apply? It applies in this way, that Jesus is better. He's better. He's better than your affections for the seductions of this world. When faced with temptations of the flesh, what is your response? Jesus is better than any satisfaction found anywhere else. It's not about saying no to self because you owe it to Christ. We don't do things because we owe Christ something. That's not how grace works. You say no to self because there is a legitimate satisfaction in honoring God through obedience. Christ did not save you to rob you of joy, but to fill you with it. And it is not a self-seeking thing, but it is a gift that has been given so that when you say no to the desires of the flesh, you are choosing joy, a joy that was provided for you to experience when you say no and deny yourself any temptations of the flesh, any sin. He's better than self-esteem issues. He's better than your pride. He's better than laziness. Does Jesus have enough pill to you that you would choose him over, over any other thing? He's better than the skeletons that are in your closet, in my closet. He's better than materialism. He's better than career advancement or your failed plans. What I mean by that is he outweighs them. If I'm so focused on these other things and I'm not focused on Christ, then I've, I'm acting as though Christ is outweighed by earthly things. He's better than your credentials, your fears, and your compromises. In other words, we like to make compromises, but the way to approach that is to say, you know what? Jesus is of such value that I will not make a compromise. I will stand here on the side of Christ because he is better. That's what that means. I will not put stock into my credentials because Jesus is my only credential. 
His atonement is my only credential. And then Jesus is better than anything that may serve as a hindrance to us and experiencing true joy that Christ has secured for us. Jesus isn't common, church. He's not trivial, trite, secondary, marginal. He's not your homeboy. He's not a dog who wants a treat. He's not an accessory. Is he better to you? If not, you need to search desperately until you find him. There's no magic formula, no 10-step method for a better relationship with Jesus or for better relationship with God or for more love from God. Consider from what you've been rescued and the extent of how you've been forgiven. And trust the Bible. Trust the Bible. Trust what God's Word says. And I'll close with this text and we'll pray. Colossians 2, 6-7 says, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. Walk in Him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in Him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. Walk in Christ. Let's pray together. Father, there's so much in this text that was probably overlooked. And Lord, there's so much that could have been unpacked in a way that was more clear or, or, or more helpful. Lord, I pray that you, that you use what has been said that was correct. Lord, that you would cause it to sift through the joint and marrow of our soul, of our spirit. Father, that you would reveal to us the things that are hidden in darkness, bring them to light. Lord, I pray that your kindness would lead us to repentance. I pray that we would walk away with joy, realizing that we have been forgiven much, and that that can be the basis of our love for Christ. Lord, that we wouldn't buy into the idea that, oh, I don't, I don't have any feelings for Jesus. I just, I just do what he says, and that's all love is. But Lord, that you would stir up our emotion and stir up our affection. Lord, for what has happened for us, it's, it's not wrong. Lord, I know it's, it's not wrong to love Jesus for what he's done for us. Lord, we, we, we love Jesus because of who he is. Father, we love you, God, because of who you are, not just what you can do for us. I, I can understand where that can be wrong, and I pray that you would save us from that. But Lord, I pray that that we would consider what you've done for us. We would consider the grace upon grace that has been so richly lavished on us. And Lord, that our response would be, I love you and I'm so thankful. Lord, and, and, and what we do might be a byproduct of those things. Just like your word says, if you love me, keep my commandments. May all those things be a byproduct of our love and a testimony of our love. Lord, help us to love you first, to love people as the first and second greatest commandment. Help us to look after the interest of others and to live a life in a manner worthy of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed.